What's up, people? I'm just going to do this once. It's 2-22-22. Don't at me on Twitter. That's the last you're going to hear about it. But it is February. It is 1 o'clock. This is MKT Call, or Market Call, depending on what you want to call it. I'm Guy Adami, and I'm joined by Dan Nathan. Today's Market Call is brought to you by CME Group, Dan, where risk meets opportunity. And, of course, Open Exchange, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter. And I got to tell you something, Dan. Given what's transpired over the last 48 hours or so, this meeting matters. No doubt about it, Guy Adami. I mean, listen, you know, I've been talking about this stuff and I got to give you a lot of credit. I mean, you really, for market call viewers over the last few months, you've been kind of eyeballing some of these geopolitical events and really kind of just suggesting that these could be some of the things that I think most importantly exasperate some of the issues that we've seen throughout the pandemic as it relates to supply chains, as it relates to commodity and input costs, that sort of thing. And so it was very important to have this on the radar because right now we are seeing some of those things. You've also been calling for 2% You've been calling for $100 crude oil. I think you're kind of like Nostradami over there here a little bit. But I think you and I kind of feel like now that we're here, now that we can agree that this wasn't really a black swan event, right, that we can start to kind of like parse out what we think happens among risk assets and markets. And, and, And the other thing I'll just say is, very sadly, I don't think anybody wants to see a war. I don't think anybody wants to see that sort of aggression and, and what might be a humanitarian situation. But as you say, we are charged to figuring this out, how it relates to markets. Yeah. And that's, and listen, I, I want to emphasize what you just said. I mean, we're not trying to be, I guess the word is, we don't want to be unfeeling or yeah. cold or callous in any way. I mean, obviously we understand what's going on, but what we're tasked to do typically is to try to figure out what's going to happen in markets. And that's what we're here for. And we've been pointing a lot of these things out over the last few months, and now they're starting to play out. First chart we need to look at, obviously, or S&P, ES1, depending on what you want to call it. But here we are, Dan, right at critical support. And the levels we've mentioned for a while, we are now once again testing that October low, the recent low we saw a couple months or so ago. That, to me, looks like a little head and shoulders formation. You drew the lines, the support lines intact. It is critical, in my opinion, that we sort of maintain this 4250, 4300 or so level in the ES1. Yeah, just to be very clear, I ripped that chart off of our good friend Carter Braxton Worth, which usually joins us on Mondays, but we were off yesterday. Carter's going to join us tomorrow at one o'clock on the MKT on the market call here. So he was highlighting this chart, and I think it was really interesting in the S&P 500. If you look at that range from the top of the head, the all-time high there up near 4,800, to that neckline, you have about a 550-point kind of area. And he was talking about on his video this morning on Worth chart about a measured move, right, guy? And you know that, you know, so you would take the size of that move to the upside and you put it down to the downside. And you know what's really interesting? You and I are just kind of dumb armchair quarterbacks. You and I were saying a couple weeks ago on Market Call, and we weren't even thinking about measured move, but 37.50, the low end of this one-year chart, that's where you probably go. There's not a whole heck of a lot of technical support when you look at this index. And then the other part about this, and and you and I are going to talk a little bit more about this, I mean, they are losing some of the big market leaders here it seems one by one and if a few of them that we're going to talk about in a second if you lose those the s p 500 is clearly going to be below 
4,000 at some point this year, and it's going to be in the throes of a meaningful sell-off. Right now, the S&P is down about 10% on the year, and we haven't seen a 10% down S&P 500 on a year since the throes of the pandemic in early 2020. No, and as counterintuitive as this may sound and as painful as it may be, I would submit it's probably the best possible thing that could happen to this market for the longer term if, in fact, we get down to that 3750 level, or even if it sets down to that 4000 level, which we've talked about a number of times, you flush a lot of people out, you flush a lot of the weak hands out, as they say, I think it sets the market up for a back half of 2022, which could be really historic in terms of how quickly it goes back up. That's just my view. We've got to take a look at, obviously, the NASDAQ as well, because this actually, to me, is a little scarier than that prior chart, the ES1 chart, the S&P chart. And here we are seemingly through this level of support. And this is a chart that didn't make a new all-time high back in December when the S&P was. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, the S&P 500 made a new all-time high in January this year. So the NASDAQ never did the NASDAQ 100 in particular. And one of the reasons why we used a two-year chart here on the NASDAQ versus a one-year of the S&P 500, it just shows you how far it's come from the lows. And one of the things that has been unique about the NASDAQ 100, that there's been about five or six stocks that make up nearly half the weight. And the most interesting thing to me, and you and I highlighted this a lot in November and December, and early January is a lot of those very heavily weighted stocks in the NASDAQ 100 made up a disproportionate amount of the gains of the S&P and the NASDAQ over the last six to nine months or so. And Guy, you just mentioned something I think is really important. You said it might be the most healthy thing for the stock market if we do get overdone to the downside a little bit. And one of the reasons why you and I are inclined to think that way is that there's been an unusual amount of positive exuberance in the markets that were really benefiting from the fact that investors knew that the Fed was going to be easy for a long time. And I'm just going to hand the ball back to you on that because all of a sudden, at some point over the last few months, investors don't feel that way. And it usually has to do right now, at least with what the Fed is willing or not willing to do as it relates to rates. Well, in terms of the Fed being your friend, in the context of the market, they were for 12 years. I don't think they are any longer. For the foreseeable future now, The conversation is, and we'll be having for weeks to come, I'm sure, with a situation in Eastern Europe and then potentially, potentially a situation between China and Taiwan change the calculus. Will it put the Fed on hold? Will the seven to eight rate increases people are expecting this year be cut in half? We will see. I would submit that they should be going regardless. I can understand the other side of that argument, but what I will tell you is If they pause for whatever reason, people might view that as bullish. I think it might be in the short term. I think it could be really bearish going forward. So I think the Fed's in this box now where the market's probably going to go down regardless, which, again, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, Dan. Yeah, so we were talking about some of those market leaders. We've got to take a look at Apple really quickly here. And one of the reasons why is it's the largest public equity on the planet, $2.7 trillion market cap. And that's a two-year chart. Also, you can see that really well-defined you know, uptrend really since late, well, to what, late 2020 here. And then the stock's been volatile. I think it's really important to remember, if you go back and look at January, February of last year, the stock had a 20% peak to top decline. It had another you know, dip 
later on in the summer here. But right now, the stock is only down 10%, guy, from its all-time highs made in early January. You look at that 200-day moving average down there at 151, and I, you got, you basically almost called it to a T in January. You thought it would get back to 156, 157, which was that kind of breakout level from late last fall. It did do that. It reversed that on that day, January 24th. But the stock seems to be levitating here, and it seems very simple. You know, if we were to get a little ugly here in the market, and today doesn't feel great. I know overnight in the futures, it was trading down, what, a little, about 2%. We closed, you know, we opened the day like flattish or so. At some point, Apple's going to join the party here. We're going to see that in some other big names likely, and you're going to be touching that 200-day moving average, possibly threatening that uptrend that's been in place for a year and a half. And that's probably the thing. When you get that sort of move, that's when you get this washout in the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. We've seen it before, though, Dan. In terms of Apple, we've seen moves like this before, and people think it's unprecedented for Apple to sell off. The reality is it does happen in that 151 level or thereabouts, which is where that lower trend line is going to come in, that uptrend line. That's probably not a ridiculous place. Now, you say relative strength. You can understand what's going on here. As people flee some of these high-growth names, they want to stay in the market, and they find some safety, perceived safety, in the form of Apple. Maybe they're right to do that, but to your point, this could be the last man standing. And if the NASDAQ were to sort of take a leg lower, Apple won't be spared. One of the things we need to talk about, though, obviously, is what's going on in the energy market because it's pretty, I don't want to say it's historic because it's not historic, but the move has been pretty significant since those lows we saw in late November, early December on the back of a number of different factors, not least of which was the arrival of the Omicron variant here in the United States. Well, Oil's gotten it all back, if not more, and here we are. Now, oil approaches $100 on threat of Ukraine war. That's the Wall Street Journal. Okay, I get the headline. I think it's a bit of a lazy headline because, quite frankly, this has been in place for months prior. Now, I think a lot of people have been talking about the potential for this to happen between Russia and Ukraine, but now it is. I think it's easy to blame this, but the reality is, Dan, I think you would submit as well, that the fundamentals for this have been in place long before. Yeah, they have. I mean, you know, maybe the demand thing, you know, people have been pointing to the fact that we're going to see a global reopening after the pandemic, after this artificial closure. You know, I'm just not so sure that fossil fuels are going to be the way forward here. I know that's a debate that many of us are going to have. And that was really a main pillar of the bear case until we had a global pandemic. And then it wasn't, you know, listen, you know, you saw this guy in April of 2020. I mean, crude went negative, right? So we've gone from negative whatever, a barrel to about 100 barrel. We haven't seen 100 barrel in a very long time here. You know, the technical setup here, I'm not so encouraged by here. You see that resistance level. You see the peak to drop declines that we've had over the course of this year. And, you know, let's see what happens with economic sanctions on Russia and what they might do with their energy production. You might see some activity out of OPEC. You might also see that strategic petroleum reserve tapped again. So to me, I'm not so interested in playing for crude oil above $100 here. And I'll tell you one thing. It's really interesting to me. And we've talked about the XLE, the ETF that tracks the major integrated oil names. You've had a really good call on the stocks. You were calling for a pickup or a, just a catch-up trade a little bit in the energy stocks following the commodity. I look at that move, though, and I see a breakout of that consolidation that's been in place, let's say, from early last year. And I'm not, like, so bullish on that guy. You see that little flag that's forming, but you also see this very, very steep uptrend that's been in place since the end of December here. I look 
look at that 200-day moving average all the way down there at 55. I look at the fact that Exxon and Chevron make up, what, 40% of that ETF. And I, this is not one I want to play. I'd rather play for a move back towards 60 in the XLE, which was kind of that breakout level from, I don't know, early January. I think so. that's exactly right. I mean, you're talking about when we start talking about standard deviations away from the 200-day moving average, which is effectively where we are now. 200-day comes in around 55 and a half. Here we are at 68 or so. That's significant, and I think you make a great point. This uptrend, which is intact, could easily be broached in a close below sort of 67, and I will tell you that $60 level, which we saw in late January, is definitely on the radar screen, and this could absolutely be one of those buy the rumor, sell the event type of things. And the same thing holds true for the OIH, which is another chart that looks great. But if you look at it real quick here, Dan, we're at the upper end of the range in terms of this one. So slide it early, as they say, because I do think we have an OIH chart. If they apparently we'd up, I guess we don't. Sorry, that's my bad, Dan. Back to you. Well, let's talk about this a little bit with the energy trade, because one of the things that, you know, obviously, if you've been in the markets long enough, you kind of remember the last time that the Fed was in a rate, you know, tightening cycle here. And that was, you know, years after the global financial crisis, I think in 2014, 2015, they started to taper bond purchases. They started to signal that they were going to raise kind of methodically interest rates by a quarter basis points. It's kind of like what we've seen over the last, let's say, you know, six months or so, at least that this Fed, the way that they've been signaling. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and we're going to talk about the dollar, but the dollar started to rally, rates started to rally when we saw that, and crude oil got hit. So, you know, some of those supply demand dynamics are going to be really important to kind of evaluate. But, guys, let's talk about rates here because we have this CME Fed Watch rate tool here. And I think this is a really interesting one. You and I kind of track this one fairly closely. And I think, you know, CNBC had an interview with Jeremy Siegel. He's a professor over there at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. And he was talking about the Fed, you know, really more focused on fighting inflation and what that means to the U.S. economy. And I think you just touched on that relative to the situation with a dust up in Eastern Europe here. And, you know, I think what you would also agree with me is that whatever goes on with Russia and Ukraine, for however long it goes on, you know, we're likely to see inflationary pressures increase as it relates to energy and just supply chains and that sort of thing. And right at a time where a lot of us thought maybe we'd be kind of getting by this sort of thing. But the Fed tool over there at the CME is now suggesting that when the Fed meets in March, it's going to be a 63-ish or 67% chance of only a 25 basis point hike. Last week, I think that was getting close to, I don't know, 50-50 or so. It's interesting in terms of people were looking for maybe a 50-point hike. I mean, that's obviously, for a lot of people, that's off the table. I'll say this. I don't typically agree with Jeremy Siegel. This time I do. I think the greatest risk to our economy here in the United States is not what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. It's what's going on in terms of inflation. So for the Fed to change course again over fears of what's happening in geopolitically overseas, I think would make a mistake because the inflation picture is only going to get worse. So I think that Fed tracker tool is really interesting. I still think the Fed needs to stay the course, which takes us to 10-year yields. Now, one thing I've said for a while, as you mentioned, I thought 10-year yields would go to 2%. And I thought if we were to see a precipitous market sell-off, which we seemingly are on the verge of now, you would see a flight to quality in the form of bond yields. In other words, TLT would go higher, 10-year yields would go lower. And to a certain extent, that's what we're seeing. I've also said that I thought in terms of twos, tens, that spread I thought we'd see 30 basis points, and I thought we'd see them in the form of 1.5% in two-year yields and 1.8% in 10. Well, you got the 1.5%, and I got to tell you something, Dan. 
I think we actually might see that 1.8% in terms of the 10-year. Yeah, well, you look at this three-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, and you see that 2% was kind of an interesting level when it broke down back in 2019, and then obviously tried to get back above there at the start of 2020 or the end of 2019. But when we had this pandemic, you saw what the Fed did. They loosened monetary policy right away here, and we saw the 10-year yield traded a level that I don't think people ever thought would happen, you know, sub 50 basis points guy. Well, it's been a nice little move back up over the last year and a half or so. It's been a bit of a stair step sort of thing. And you look at this chart, you say, all right, we're back at that 2%. That's a psychologically important level. And then you throw in this geopolitical stuff and the safe haven propensity that investors have towards buying U.S. Treasuries, well, that could mean yields go lower. I look at that move that we had in a very short period of time, about a month and a half, from about 1.4% up to above 2% here. And I say, all right, maybe we get a retracement back to that uptrend. You see the 200-day moving average there at 151. You just mentioned the TLT. Let's go to that here. That is the 20-year U.S. Treasury ETF. They don't have a 10-year U.S. Treasury ETF. So we'll look at this one. Look at that over the last two and a half years, guy. You see that that we're just back bounced off of near 135 has been really good technical support here. So the price of the bond, the ETF is going to act in inverse to the yields. And if you expected 10-year yields to come back towards one and a half percent or so in the next couple months, you might see the TLT back near 145 very quickly and possibly as high as 150. I position that way with the TLT using options. While option premiums have gotten elevated over the last couple weeks or so, it was still a good way to play for defined risk being a bit contrarian and playing for a move back towards that 200-day moving average. I think if you believe that the market's going to sell off, as I think I know I do. I think Dan does as well. I think this TLT trade sets up extraordinarily well. We hit those levels of support. That's the green line. We're bouncing off it now. The 200-day moving average comes in around 146, 145 and a half or thereabouts. I think we're going to trade back up to it. And that probably gets us down to that sort of 1.8% or so that I just outlined. By the way, if that were to continue to go, if we saw the TLT continue to rally, I think that would be really interesting in what it will mean for the yield curve, which I don't think two-year yields are going anywhere at 1.5%. And if we were to start to trend back down to 1.5%, a flattening yield curve in terms of two tens, I think I know what that means for the market, Dan, and I'm quite certain it's not particularly good. Well, and then there's subsectors in the market that wouldn't be particularly great. One of them would be banks. And we know that, you know, some of the major money centers reacted very well when we saw the yield curve kind of steepening a little bit over the last few weeks. And so to your point, if it were to get a bit flatter, that wouldn't be great because we did see money rotate into some of the financial stocks, particularly banks. Guy, I'll just say this, you know, you just mentioned that, you know, you and I think that the market sells off from here. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about a lot of investors who are new to the market, at least the stock market over the like let's call it the last five to seven years or so is that they got very used to just BTFD. You know what that means, buy the dip. And part of that was that the Fed had your back. And we just talked about that a little bit. And so the point is, is that we're at a very different phase right now. And I think there was a really interesting note from our good friend, Peter Bookvar, who's been on market call with us before. He's a CIO at Bleakley Advisory Group. And he had a note out this morning in the book report. You can find that on Twitter there, talking about the last two market 
market implosions that we've seen after the dot-com bubble in the late 90s and what happened in 00 through really the lows in 02. And then obviously the run-up into the financial crisis with a lot of housing-related sort of, with housing in particular, and then a lot of financial instruments around that. You know, it wasn't until the Fed started raising rates, really, you know, that, that those bubbles kind of burst. And that's what I think is really different this time around. And the other thing that I'll just say that a lot of investors who are new to the market may not get that you and I get is that we have not really had protracted bear markets in these intermediate periods when we've had crashes. And when we've had crashes, you know, the Fed funds rate in 2000 was above 6%. The Fed funds rate in 2007, when the market topped out, was above 5% here. Where did we get in 2019? The Fed funds barely got to three. It didn't get to three. It got to, what, two and a half or something like that. So that's what's different about these sorts of periods. So for us, I think the idea of a market sell-off, you got to be patient here because time is the thing that fixes a lot of these ills. Liz Young's talked about it. We've had a number of people that have mentioned, I think Mike Wilson as well, talk about we've gone from a buy the dip mentality. I don't know what the F was in that BTFD, but I'm sure I can figure it out, to sell rallies. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, Today, if you learned anything today, today in a nutshell is exactly that. Market went unchanged to slightly higher on the day, and then people sold into it very aggressively. You see where we are now. The other thing you have to look at, because this is sort of the linchpin of everything, Dan, is the U.S. dollar. And I'm not certain what to make of this thing. I will tell you I could see a scenario where the dollar rips from here, north of 100 in terms of the DXY, and I can see a scenario where we trade down to the 200-day moving average. And quite frankly, I'm a little confused. When that happens... You have to let the chart be your guide. I still think we're in this uptrend. I still think higher. But if we were to close below, let's call it 94 and a half, 95, I think it gets sort of sloppy to the downside in the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and your guess is as good as mine of what equities might be doing in that scenario. I think that's what you're kind of getting at, too. But one thing I think that you and I could both agree on, and we just got through the bulk of S&P earnings in a way, and if you look at the dollar you know, year over year, it's definitely higher. I mean, if you look at the Dixie where it was trading back in, let's say, February of 2021, we had a Dixie that was bought 91 or so, and here we are you know, in very near 96. It's been consolidating over the last couple months, and to your point, let the charts guide you here. That uptrend off of the lows from the first half of 2021 is intact. You know, that 200-day moving average all the way down there just below 94 is something where, you know, you could see that consolidation period that we had in October. Maybe that's where it gets to. And that might be good for U.S. multinationals. You know what I mean? But by the same token, why is it doing that is really the case. And, you know, you, your guess is as good as mine. So a surging dollar wouldn't be great. But by the same token, if the dollar were to precipitously drop, I don't think that would be great either, but it's worth you know keeping an eye on, which is one of the reasons why you like to look at derivatives or things that trade essentially off of the dollar movement. And you've had a great call in gold. And I got to just give it to you. I think I've lost a couple of bets here and there. You were saying that this consolidation that we've seen over the last few months was likely to break to the upside. Well, we've had that. And if you look at this chart going back to the start of 2019, you'd call that a pennant formation. I know UBS is saying they see this this strength, this recent strength is short-lived. What's your take here on gold? You've had a good call for the right reasons here. That is a massive tactical breakout of a long-standing downtrend guy. Well, that was just, look, I mean, it came down to basically a 50-50 shot. We had talked about this pennant formation continuing to narrow. I thought it would resolve itself on the upside, but quite frankly, we could be sitting here today on February 22nd and talking about gold at $1,700 and how it just can't get out of its own way. Right now, it seems to be working. UBS thinks it's going to be short-lived. 
I could totally understand that because we've seen this movie before. We've seen a number of times where gold looks like it's starting to rally only to be thwarted. It could happen in the form of that U.S. dollar going significantly higher and a flight to quality in the form of the dollar putting the brakes or the kibosh on the gold trade or or potentially central banks needing to sell gold for whatever reason in the environment that we find ourselves in. I'll stand by this and say I think gold's got legs here. I think it's going to continue to go higher. And it wouldn't surprise me, Dan, to see the levels we last saw in July of 2020. All right. Talk to me about the GDX here. How do you be trading this thing here? Because, you know, this is the gold miners and this is, I think, the largest weighted stocks in the GDX are about 4%. There's a bunch of them there. So this is not one of those ETFs where there's a handful of stocks really dictating the course of this thing here. You look at that well-defined downtrend. I drew the line here, Guy. This recent move that we've seen from, what, 29 or so up to 34 and a half is right at that downtrend. It's above its 200-day moving average, which hasn't been a great guide when you look at this chart here oftentimes you'll see a move above the 200-day moving average right and then you'll see a failure here and when that's failed you know it went from 40 last spring down to about 33 and a half guy that's like a serious move here so here we are we got a 10 percent plus move working here do you play the gdx for a breakout a while back i erroneously called for the oih chart that was my mistake i apologize but i'll bring that up because what happened there is you finally saw the equities catch up with the underlying commodity. And I think that's where we're on the verge of here. We're right at this downtrend line, and this suggests that the equities do not believe the gold move. But if gold were to continue to rally, like I think that it will, I think you'll see the knee-jerk reaction in terms of the GDX. And that $40 level, the highs back in the spring, early summer of 2021, I think are in play. This is a great trend line, and I understand why you'd be inclined to sell it here. I just think the equities are telling you we need gold to continue to prove itself. Until it does, we don't believe it. The same thing happened in energy and the underlying stocks. I think that's what's happening here now in gold. Yeah, and you and I like to play this little cat and mouse game where you know I say okay boomer to you, and you kind of say shut up millennial, and I'm no, not a millennial, and you're not a boomer, but we're just having a little fun with it. You know, better part of the last year when you kind of suggested that gold could be a thing here is I'd say, well, why would you you know buy any incremental dollar that's interested in a store of value? Like, why would you buy gold when you could buy digital gold? Why you could buy the Bitcoin here? And you know, we have a chart of the Bitcoin futures here, guy. Um, this is listed on. The CME here. And this has been a fairly popular product. It was released, I think, in that frenzy, that retail frenzy in the late 2017 period. But I know a lot of institutions who use these futures for hedging and speculation and for a whole host of other reasons as they think about, you know, kind of managing their digital asset portfolios. But look at this on a one-year basis. We've got to stretch it out here a little bit. And you see that volatility. You see it taking off from about 30,000 early last year, it gets to about 67,000, goes back down to about 30,000, makes a new high in in the fall to about 69,000 here. Well, here we are, man. We are in a protracted down period. We see the Bitcoin below the 200-day moving average, which it made a heck of a move, man, off those recent lows from last month, but got rejected on no real news. You know, sometimes it's regulatory stuff here or China or mining or this or that or whatever, but there's not a whole heck of a lot of news around this thing. What's your take here? And does that, the inverse reaction, I guess gold had the breakout and this thing's breaking down. What's your take on that too? It's interesting that divergence here is the first time we've seen this in a while. I'll tell you, at least on this one, we had a decent call in the fall. We thought Bitcoin would get down to about 31,000. Those prior levels of support from June, July of 2021, it got close. Subsequently, as it started to rally, we thought, okay, the 200-day moving average is in play. 
that happened. I got to tell you, right now, the way it's trading, it looks like a breach of that 31,000 is inevitable. Now, I'm not calling for it, but if you just looked at this and didn't know what you were talking about, you would say this does not look particularly healthy, right? And I think that's exactly right. Series of lower highs, you take out that 31,000 level and you wonder what the next shoe to drop is and why it's happening. Could be happening because people are finally finding out or figuring out that gold has value here. I'm not sure. Maybe there's some regulation things out there, or maybe there's some forced selling in terms of people having to get out of the crypto. I don't know, but this chart doesn't look particularly good, Dan. No, it doesn't. Let's look at the Ethereum futures really quickly because I know the CME reached a milestone recently. I think we highlighted it on the market call a week or two ago. So you're seeing greater adoption of the futures in, as it relates to Ethereum. And this one is actually much further off of its recent lows or one-year lows. And listen, you know, my quick take here is that I find Ethereum and just a lot of the kind of projects and the protocols that are being built on top of it and that of Solana, which is a similar smart contract block chain, I find it more interesting, you know, when I think about innovation and I think of some of the narratives around it. So you see where that support is. It's between 2000 and kind of 1750. It got as low as maybe 1450 early last year. So that one's interesting. We just got to, before we get out of here, guy, I want to highlight Coinbase. They're going to report this week. I think the implied move is plus or minus 11% in either direction. That's Thursday after the close. And this thing, man, oof, direct listing early last year, the Bitcoin top was in almost nearly to the date of that direct listing IPO. You had this huge move in the fall when Bitcoin started to move. So you see this thing is very well correlated. This chart is a train wreck. If you look at that rejection below that level, just above 200, you see that downtrend. If it gets below that, not particularly good. And the last thing I'll just say, this is a $37 billion market cap. It's amazing. And, you know, Mark Mahaney talks about this being the bank for the metaverse going forward, which might be the case, but that's probably five to 10 years away, I'll tell you 11% move and this is probably a $19 move, which takes us right down to that sort of 160 prior support level. This doesn't look great either, Dan, but I guess let price be your guide. I mean, if I'm looking to play this, I think there's more pain to the downside. Yeah, I mean, listen, I've tried to be constructive on this name over the last year when it's been kind of down and out. There was one big move here, but I just don't see it anymore. The narrative to me has changed for a lot of these most recent IPOs in the fintech market. So there you have it. We talked about putting 30 minutes on the clock. If I didn't, I apologize, but that's what we typically do. And we're going to be true to that, Dan. That is today's market call. Thanks to our sponsors once again, CME Group and Open Exchange. If you like what you saw, and we sure hope you did, tune in tomorrow at 1 p.m. We'll be joined by Carter Braxtonworth. We'll see you then. See you then.